Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a reporter and editor at Energy Intelligence, and this is the latest installment in our competitive intelligence series where we look at how companies are developing and executing their strategies in a rapidly evolving energy sector. Joining me today is Casey Merriman, the head of our competitive intelligence service. Happy spring, Casey. Yes, happy spring. It's it's nice here in Houston. Yeah, same in Arizona. We're, we're gearing up for the heat of the summer, but still nice now. <laughs> it's, it's a nice window, that's for sure. Yes. Um, okay, so we are recording this right at the end of the first quarter of 2021. And uh, by now, we've heard financial and strategy updates from all the major energy companies. And in a lot of ways, this has been one of the more pivotal first quarters we've had in some time coming, of course, at the end of one of the most challenging single years that most of us can remember broadly, obviously, but especially for the energy sector. And the tumult of 2020 forced companies to really re-examine a lot of their assumptions about market cycles, few more so than the companies we'll be discussing today, ExxonMobil and Chevron. Both of these companies recently provided some pretty substantial strategy updates, and we'll dig into them individually a bit more in a minute. But Casey, just let's just talk a bit more big picture first. Um but both Exxon and Chevron have moved, at least rhetorically, much closer to some of their European peers in terms of accepting the realities of the energy transition, including the need to keep emissions in check, but also around uncertainties over future oil demand. So what does this new paradigm mean for the era of what we like to call big oil? And and what does it mean not just for the oil companies themselves, but for the customers and investors in these companies? Yeah, I think what we've really seen this past year is kind of a a wide awakening, right? Not just Chevron, Exxon, but NOCs, kind of the oil sector more broadly, that to be a big oil company, right, over the long term uh, is not a do-nothing strategy. You actually are going to have to be very proactive in trying to build resiliency um, for this uncertain future, right? That there's Mm -hmm. a kind of a general recognition that even if there is a lot of uncertainty over how exactly the world is going to, you know, eventually reach net zero emissions and, you know, and decarbonize, that, that that is the intention. And economies and countries want to get there. And that challenges oil and gas. And so it's not just enough to be a low cost producer. That in itself does not not guarantee success. You have to be the absolute lowest cost producer and you're going to have to manage your carbon. And so what we've really seen is that to kind of keep that investment case, to keep that social license to operate, to keep with customers who are, you know, even in emerging economies starting to ask questions about the carbon footprint of the oil and gas that they know that they're going to still purchase, these companies are going to have to kind of clean up. It has to be low cost and low carbon. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, before we dig into these companies individually and what, and what they've been saying, um, how do Exxon and Chevron compare more generally and how and how they view the energy transition and the impact it will have or has already had on their core businesses and 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 how we might how might we see their approach to those businesses change yeah i think 
you know, what, what we've seen is that Exxon has kind of come around to this view that, you know, it used to think that despite kind of global ambitions, in its own view, oil and gas demand globally was going to kind of blow through Paris-aligned strategies. And and so it, it very much had this view that not only was oil and gas here to stay, but it was going to stay in a very big way and it could operate under that mentality. Whereas Chevron, very you know, kind of generally bullish on the future of oil and gas, they had kind of a more conservative view that that just because demand was there didn't mean that it would be accompanied by high prices. And so to remain a player in this space during the transition, uh, what, what they've kind of come around to is, again, that f- hyper kind of resiliency that 2020 was unprecedented, but it was a, a, a real wake-up call on what uh, what is the bottom point in a cycle might look like, right? <laughs> that uh, kind of maybe mm-hmm. general assumptions around the ups and downs in the industry uh, kind of need to be rethought. And in what that resiliency means needs to be set much lower to really kind of stress test the business. And so, so what they kind of uh, have come around to, you know, generally and collectively is this idea that, they have to be kind of nimble. They have to be very selective in the projects that they invest in, um, ideally with kind of short lead times, you know, given kind of the uncertainty that exists in, in the longer term time horizon. And that there is a need to start to adapt their businesses to changing markets. So the, the, they are very much not of the view that they want to break into entirely new business lines like the European majors, right? That they yeah. they have ambitions to be massive renewable power generators and distributors. That's not what we're seeing here. It's, it's not what we should expect. This is about finding ways to integrate low carbon into their existing kind of competencies, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, let's look at them one at a time. Um, sure. And let's just start with Exxon, because their strategy shift has really been quite dramatic compared to where they were even just a year ago. Um, so on our on our website, that's energyintel.com, uh, we have a handy little table that shows exactly how the strategies of both Exxon and Chevron have changed versus what they said last year, their strategy updates. And of course, can't be forgotten that the strategy in 2020 was laid out in the very early days of the pandemic before anyone could have known then what the what the next nine to 12 months would have in store. Um, and that's obviously a major part of, of the story. Um, but let me just highlight some of the updates that Exxon made um, to its plans from a year ago. So in, in 2020, they were still holding on to previous growth plans that that could see their global production rise to 5 million BOE a day. And now the plan is to hold global production flat at about 3.7 million barrels uh, BOE a day. Um, They also plan to spend between 30 billion and $35 billion a year. Now they're targeting 16 to 19 billion this year and 20 to 25 billion thereafter. And perhaps most notably, they have long declared a commitment to grow their dividend annually. But they said this year, for the first time, that they will keep the dividend flat while they try to reduce their debt. So there is a lot of uh, just kind of resonant themes in there that we've seen reflected elsewhere in the industry. But each of these are pretty big concessions on Exxon's part. So what what was behind this strategy shift and, and what does it mean for the future of the company? 
Yeah, we've seen such an about face from Exxon, and it really is kind of rooted in in something I mentioned earlier about kind of their their worldview uh, was kind of without stating it directly premised on this view that oil and gas prices would be robust over the long term that they would need to be to kind of meet demand right and they were very much wanting to grow into that demand cycle you know looking at investment cut across the industry you know potential for uh, you know a gap in supplies and all that kind of stuff they they wanted to take market share in that situation but the problem is is that their kind of underlying portfolio uh, has really deteriorated over the years in terms of its profitability and when you couple that with this very very significant dividend that they pay even before the pandemic happened they couldn't cover their spending plans, but their dividend and mm-hmm. their capex, they were already having to, you know, dip into cash or, or, or raise debt to do so. And so last year just really brought it to a head. I mean, they absolutely just did not have the money to keep the status quo going, and they couldn't keep kind of arguing against the tide that nothing had changed, that the pandemic had had not required a shift. You know, it's just the idea that. Even if oil and gas demand does continue to rise, uh, you know, it does not mean that you kind of can spend at all costs. So really, they've had to hit the reset button because just paying the dividend that they currently offer is is going to be difficult. They're they're really having to absolutely focus themselves on trying to pivot toward lower cost, more resilient assets with the money that they are investing, and then everything else is going to the dividend. I mean, and this is just a huge, huge about face for for Exxon, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the other, you know, very notable piece of this was their new language around cutting emissions and, and just focusing mm-hmm. more on trying to align with the, with, with the Paris Climate Accords, which Exxon had long kind of shunned even as companies like like shell and bp and total have kind of embraced paris so why the change of heart yeah i think here you know i mean exxon has said for for years you know we you know generally support paris right but it it was they were just still kind of operating under their their own in-house view that at this current time we don't see it happening so why should we build our business around those assumptions. And what we really saw, and this isn't just restricted to Exxon, but over the past year, the the pandemic really kind of accelerated the thinking around the transition. It was really, you know, kind of seen in a lot of quarters as a wake-up call to kind of wider systemic macro risks, you know, that are thought to accompany climate change. And so what we saw was that both you know, institutional investors, lenders themselves come under pressure to say, hey, you know, is where you're putting your money aligned with Paris? And if if not, what are you doing to bring about change at those companies? And so Exxon, you know, for the first time in its history actually found itself, you know, the target of activists, investors, you know, who just you know saw how unsustainable Exxon's existing strategy had become and used that for an as an opportunity to really push them 
on the um, kind of emissions side of the ledger as well. And so what we've seen there is, you know, Exxon had some kind of, you know, modest interim emissions targets that, you know, expired in 2020 and we hadn't heard anything about what was next. So they've put forward, you know, a next round of plans. They unveiled what is going to kind of be their strategic focus, which is trying to use their long-standing history in kind of breakthrough technologies, right, um, and try to apply it to carbon management. So carbon capture and sequestration is going to be their focal point. Over the next decade, they're going to look to try to invest in some of these still nascent technologies to try to cut its cost by a third. This would, they, they see it as not only, you know, something essential to deal with their own in-house emissions, um, but as, as maybe an advantage that they could take to the wider marketplace, right? Because it's not like Exxon is in a bubble having to address its emissions. This is becoming a, you know, every industry across economies type of conversation. So, right. you know, it was, it was, it was kind of forced upon them, um, but that is kind of how they have tried to embrace it. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, um, let's move on to Chevron, uh, which has also changed its tune a bit, but also, maybe not quite as dramatically as Exxon. Mm-hmm. Um, but just for some comparison, um, Chevron is slashing its CapEx plans, which is not too surprising, but it is significant. So from uh, 19 to 22 billion dollars from 21 to 24 or ne- uh, 2021 to 2024 um, previously um, to now keeping capex flat to 2020 levels at about 14 billion and setting what Mike Worth called a hard cap of 14 to 16 billion dollars through 2025. Uh, Chevron uh, s- said production growth will slow a little bit both globally and in the Permian. Uh, they basically pushed out their targets to hit a million barrels a day in the Permian and 3.5 million barrels globally by about a year, extended that deadline for about a year. Um, and then they also set up some more uh, aggressive targets for reducing their own emissions, both the volumes and the target dates, including eliminating routine flaring by 2030. So in comparison to Exxon, under what circumstances is Chevron formulating these strategies and and why have they been able to sort of dial down a bit more incrementally than Exxon, at least on the financial side? Yeah, yeah. I think incremental is is the right word here because, you know, within this big oil model, uh, you know, kind of investors generally like what Chevron has had to offer. Um, You know, even though all the share prices of the majors, uh, you know, remain down uh, since, you know, the beginning of last year and other kind of periods of time, Chevron is at the top. So relatively speaking, it has been a top performer. And it really goes back to that kind of financial conservatism I talked about, right? So they, uh, you know, under uh, Mike Worth, the current CEO's helm, they really pivoted from a we're going to invest in every mega project we can get our hands on. You know, if it's there, we will sanction it type of, of program to we're going to be very limited. We, we want short cycle. We want control. We want flexibility. We want low debt. We, we don't want exposure should prices not be, you know, $100 anymore kind of thing. And that's worked out really, really well for them. And so what it has allowed them to do is they can pay a dividend and they've been able to grow it 
quite robustly, and they can afford to continue doing that because of, mm. of the way they've structured things um, and really prioritizing um, higher margin projects. And so against that backdrop, what we really have seen from Chevron, that the shift has been almost, 2020 was almost like a demonstration year. They had begun kind of going into it, articulating this approach to the transition was, look, we we see Paris, like we see it. We, we see that that's where, you know, the trajectory of where things are going to go. But we also don't, we know that there's so a lot of uncertainty on how that looks. We want an incremental approach. We will set target, you know, medium term targets. We will invest in these markets as they, you know, become apparent, you know, as demand shifts, we will be there, you know, kind of ready to hit the accelerator. And so, their investments um, in this space, like they, they're absolutely modest, right? 2% of CapEx this year is going to kind of low carbon investments, but they're hoping to kind of get buy-in from investors on this idea of, well, look, let's, let's show you what we can do between, you know, now and the next five years, you know, or whatever, and expect, you know, watch this space. We will be active, um, but we aren't going to try to get ahead of things. Um, you know, we we want the pathway to become clearer with each kind of incremental step that we make. And, and they they think that their kind of very short cycle, flexible upstream portfolio benefits that right because they can pivot say more quickly should the call come. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it seems like a lot of, or at least some of the groundwork for Chevron was, or has been being laid uh, kind of over the last few years. I mean, they've had kind of some of these new uh, new energy ventures, and it seems like they are, in, in a way, just sort of better positioned going into this strategy shift than than maybe Exxon was. Yeah, exactly. And, and that comes and that comes down to the, the, their financial position was just much better. I mean, Exxon has been investing, you know, in various technologies at, at a kind of incremental level for, you know, a couple decades at this point. But, you know, I think part of it is actually reflecting um, Chevron's position as a California company, right? Um, that state um, has its own low carbon fuel standard structure in place that is completely changing the incentives and dynamics in that in the state's uh, transportation fuel market. And so, kind of being plugged into it and having heavy exposure there, Chevron is kind of responding. And, it, and it, again, it's not in so many words, but what they kind of really laid out this year is look, you know, just as we are kind of embracing this framework here, should these frameworks, you know, become regional, national, multinational, we will operate in them. You know, we're, we're kind of, we're ready to go. Hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, just to wrap up, uh, what should we be on the lookout for between now and the next strategy update season um, a year from now? I mean, do, do these companies or, or do we expect these companies to, to stick to their guns on spending and production discipline? And will it be enough to satisfy the demands of the various stakeholders? Yeah, I, I, I would say unequivocally, I expect them to stick to their guns on spending and production discipline. And and it's the fact Exxon can't afford not to. And in Chevron, it's worked for a few years at this point. So, you know, why change? So absolutely expect that. I would say really the thing 
I'm going to be watching for the most is one of the big distinctions between the kind of emissions, Paris alignment, targets and conversations that we're hearing between the European majors and the U.S. majors is around what are called scope three emissions, right? So these are the emissions that are created by the end use of their product, right? The combustion of oil and gas. And the European majors have pledged in some fashion to achieve net zero scope three emissions by mid-century. For now, the U.S. majors have no strategy around those emissions, right? They're just making the argument, you know, they, they aren't the ones creating those emissions. It's very complicated. You know, someone's operational emissions are our scope three, all that kind of stuff. For now, it appears that there is space to not address those emissions just yet, right? Mm. But our kind of house view that we have is that in the next one to two years, that the Exxon and Chevron, the, the largest U.S. companies, are likely going to have the expectation from investors to have some scope three strategy. It doesn't mean net, net zero necessarily, but this idea that you, you, you kind of can't get away with, that's not our problem, right? Because decarbonizing economies is everyone's problem. So mm-hmm. some kind of demonstration of you know partnering with large customers or somehow helping like the the little man, so to speak, address their emissions, that there will need to be some kind of defined, articulated plan to help in that process. So I think really what I'm so interested in in kind of watching this year is the the pace with which that pressure unfolds, you know, um, because I I think the, the biggest takeaway of the past couple years is that the discussion in this industry around energy transition strategies is not static. You don't get to just tick a box and walk away, right? Hmm. The, the bar is constantly moving and it will constantly move here. So really on the, the, the lookout for the pace with which that bar is kind of set for these companies. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, that's that's all uh, really interesting, um, but I think we need to leave it there for now. But uh, thanks for walking us through all this, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Luke. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you would like to read more of our news and views on corporate intelligence or any of our other services, please visit our website at www.energyintel.com. My name is Luke Johnson, and we'll see you next time.